Well, this evening for a while we're going to study the passage I read to you, Isaiah chapter 11. We've been working our way through Isaiah and we've come uh, to these chapters which are so appropriate for Christmas as well. And um, we're particularly looking at Isaiah 11 under the heading of the reign of Messiah, the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of Christ, our saviour. We have reminded ourselves as we've gone through this book of Isaiah that it's being spoken into an historical context, some 700 BC. Uh, The prophet was prophesying to the Old Testament people of Judah especially, but also um, with his eye on the northern kingdom of Assyria. And we've seen that while there is much of hope and grace and mercy in this uh, prophecy, there is also uh, a straightforward exposure of the sin and wickedness that had come into the land of Judah. And she was to be punished for her sin by invasion and deportation. Firstly, the northern kingdom to Assyria, and that would follow on not too long after this particular prophecy. Uh, And then later on, some 130 years or so later on, there will be a deportation of the southern kingdom into Babylon. Babylon. And when we say deportation, don't for a minute think of um, smart Uh, trains and aeroplanes and wagons taking the people off in comfort. Uh, I know they didn't have those modes of transport then, but don't think of it as some holiday outing. It was essentially slavery. People went off perhaps with their eyes having been gouged out. Uh, They went off in shackles uh, and they went off to a life, a very short life of slavery. It was ghastly. And yet... God had warned that this would happen if they, if they uh, failed to keep the covenant. And yet at the same time, we see coming up again and again in this prophecy um, the mercy of God as he predicts that there will come new and better days into the land of Israel as a whole and indeed into the world. That while he is faithful... To keep his threats, he is also faithful to his own gracious character to bring huge blessing to the world. And we see in this chapter 11 something about a whole new surge forward of the kingdom of God with the coming reign of Christ. And we have to understand that the prophet, uh, someone has once called Isaiah the eagle-eyed prophet because he sees so far ahead you know, like one of these eagles that can see a vole, perhaps a uh, hundred yards or so up in the air, can just see and pick it out and swoop on it, uh, clear-eyed, focused. And so Isaiah, the eagle-eyed prophet, and he's here prophesying of the reign of Jesus Christ. Let's look then in a little more detail at this chapter. And we see firstly the origin that's here predicted concerning Christ. Remember, of course, that the readers, the hearers in the days of Isaiah wouldn't know uh, about Jesus in the way that we know about him. 
They wouldn't have a New Testament. They wouldn't have the Gospels describing the birth of Christ and his ministry on earth. So this was to them like light from heaven shining on an area that they didn't really know too much about. And the first thing we read in verse 1 is this prediction of his origin. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Uh, That word rod, translated as a rod in the New King James Version of the Bible, could also be translated as a stump. It's just a piece of wood. It's just a bit of stem. I'm sure we've been, many of us, past forestry commission land when the trees have recently been felled for timber and you see just these stumps left. It looks like a very barren and desolate scene. It looks absolutely awful, doesn't it? And, and you look at one of those stumps and you think, well, it's had it. But what he's in effect saying, this, the prophet, is this, that the coming of Messiah, it'll be just like one of those stumps It'll be so insignificant. It'll be so obscure. You might even say it will never make it. And how we find that in the gospel accounts of the birth of Christ. Just a little baby laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Growing up in Nazareth of all places. Somewhere that was most definitely not a famous city in northern Israel. Uh, almost certainly working for the carpenter, Joseph, the carpenter's son as he was known as, a humble and obscure start. And yet at the same time in this prophecy, we learn not only of his humility and obscurity, we learn of his ultimate success and his glory. Because we're told the rod comes forth from the stem of Jesse, If you know your Bible, you will know that Jesse was the father of King David. And it was to King David that God made some amazing promises. In 2 Samuel and chapter 7, we read this promise of God to David. He says concerning David's son and David's descendants, so Solomon and the descendants that would come from Solomon, he says this, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then in verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And what this is, is a a prophecy through Nathan that David's lineage, David's descendants would one day become Messiah. That from David, from the line of David, would be the royal son of David, King David's greater son, as he's called. His reign will be forever. And so what seems to be just a humble, obscure beginning is also suffused with this glory that he is going to be a stem coming out of the line of David. He's going to be David's greatest son. And we have that word, a branch. A branch shall grow out of his roots. A branch here is more than a stem. It's more than a stump. It's part of a grown plant. And it implies fruitfulness. 
in an earlier chapter of Isaiah, in chapter 4, and verse 2, we read concerning the days of Messiah, that in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. So an immense amount, of course, is packed into this small condensed statement uh, that there is one here who is humble and lowly and yet one who is David's great uh, descendant, king of kings, lord of lords. And I just would say this in passing, that as it is with Christ, so often it is with the kingdom of Christ, even with the church of the Lord Jesus, often in weakness, often in obscurity, often persecuted, and yet so often it suddenly blossoms and grows and hundreds and thousands are converted to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And where there is something that seems as though so insignificant, it can blossom and bear fruit in the earth. So we learn firstly of his origin. Secondly, we learn of his divine anointing. In the second verse, And don't worry, I'm not going to go in detail through every verse of this chapter. But in the second verse, it says this, that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In other words, he is the son of man. He is a real human being. And yet this Holy Spirit rests upon him. He is, in fact, the son of God. And the spirit of God rests upon him because the spirit of God is perfectly happy to be there upon him. There is a complete mutuality and complacency and delight in each other. We have here an indication of the triune nature of God, the Trinity. And Jesus, when he commenced his earthly ministry, the evangelist Luke tells us that when he began his earthly ministry in the synagogue at Nazareth, he read from the book of the prophet Isaiah and he found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. We have this Amazing coming together of the divine and the human in Christ as he takes to himself human nature. And our response, friends, should be individually that we worship him. We worship him. Thirdly, we read in this passage of his perfect endowment. The spirit rests upon him and we're told in a wonderful statement What this means, he's the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He there, with all his deep and intimate knowledge of the Father and of the Spirit, he becomes one who has such, or he is one who has such insight into our hearts. That's why any one of us, He knows us through and through. He becomes, as chapter 9 tells us, the wonderful counsellor. He's able to to counsel you. He's able to to know you, to, to lead you. 
to bless you. He's not only wise and insightful, he's powerful. Uh, We're told he has the spirit of counsel and might. And we need to understand that might in the Old Testament day very often meant violent and tyrannical rule. But Psalm 72 tells us that Messiah's kingdom is entirely different. Verse 12 of that psalm. He will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy. He will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall their blood be in his sight. He's quite different from the other kings of his day. In the previous chapter, chapter 10, there is a prophecy against Assyria. And in the middle of the chapter, we're told what the king of Assyria is like. He is arrogant. He is haughty. He's like so many of the rulers even today in our present world. For the strength of my, by the strength of my hand I've done it. By my wisdom I am prudent. I have removed the boundaries of the people. I have robbed their treasuries. I've put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And he goes on to compare his, his predatory attacks on other nations like, like a, someone stealing eggs from a nest. He's full of himself, but God is going to bring him down. God is going to deal with him, but Christ is not like this. There is a love, a a beauty of holiness upon him. And then fourthly, we read in verses three and four of his awesome majesty. His delight is in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Unlike these other rulers, there's no bias in him. There's no violence. There's no covetousness. He's perfectly righteous. He has a compassionate care for the weak and vulnerable. And how true this is of the reign of King Jesus, the Messiah. From the days of the early church in the Roman Empire, right through to modern times, it is the church of Jesus Christ which has so often led the way in caring for weak and orphans, fatherless and widow, in setting up charities in the abolition of the slave trade, and many, many other things. Unlike Satan, unlike the proud rulers of this world so often, thankfully not always, but so often, he doesn't clothe himself with a dangerous violence, with a mafia type of bodyguards. But he's full of righteousness and faithfulness. And although these words of these two particular verses are expressed in military language. We need to note what is the weapon that this Messiah uses. We're told he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. In other words, his weapon are his words. Those are his weapons. And let me just give you one example of the use of these weapons. It happened with a man called Saul of Tarsus in the early 
time after Jesus Christ came into this world, Saul of Tarsus was a persecutor of the church. And he was on his way to Damascus to haul Christians into prison when Jesus Christ met him on the way and a light shone round about him. Now, what was it that brought that man low before Jesus Christ? It was this. He tells us in Romans chapter 7, the commandment came and I died. What was that commandment? The commandment was thou shalt not covet. We're told that that killed him. Not literally, but we're told that that exposed him and humbled him and brought him to deep repentance. This is Messiah advancing by the breath of his lips and again and again he does it in men and women and boys and girls as he brings us to an acknowledgement of our sin, as he brings us to repentance from our sins and faith in him and then joyous release. Well, moving on more rapidly, we see not only his origin, his divine anointing, his perfect endowment, his awesome majesty, but in verses 6 through to 9, we learn of his reign. The first part is to do with him uh, as, a, as a person, as a glorious king. But the second part of the chapter, verses 6 to 9, is to do with the nature of his reign. And as you read these verses, the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat, and so on, we are in fact reading in what amounts to paradise restored. You perhaps know that John Milton uh, in the 17th century wrote a long poem called Paradise Lost and then another one called Paradise Restored. And this is what Messiah is going to bring. Such will be the influence of his reign in the lives of men and women. It'll be like a second paradise, a second garden of Eden. And we have in these few verses really set before us Jesus Christ as the second Adam. Not now to sin, but now he is perfect and righteous. And we just note very quickly some of the characteristics of his reign. Firstly, there's no predation. There's no terror. Uh, There is trust and harmony. So open Uh, So opposites and natural enemies become one. The wolf dwelling with the lamb, the cow and the bear grazing together. Even the diets of the animals are changed. I don't think we're to think of these literally. Maybe they will happen literally, but above all, they bring to us the nature of the changes in men and women as they become lovers of God and lovers of man and lovers of their neighbors as themselves. And in this, where Jesus Christ reigns in society, uh, we're told the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. In a country where people truly, many people are truly Christians, children are safe, even from that snake and viper called man. And God's love fills the whole world. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's as though the whole world has become the holy mountain. Not God now just in Mount Zion in Old Testament days, but the whole world influenced gloriously by the gospel. And I say this 
To my fellow Christians, I say this, have faith in God. He will do it. It says it here, he will do it. And then thirdly, the people, verses 10 to 16. We certainly haven't time to look at this in any detail at all, but we read about this huge ingathering of people. Firstly, the ingathering of the scattered, verses 11 and 12, from the various nations. Now, it's speaking in Jewish terms because the Jewish had a the Jews had a huge diaspora through the known world uh, and then with the various exiles, deportations, that diaspora came even wider. Uh, but God is here speaking in term, Old Testament terms of the gathering of these exiles back. He gathers together the outcasts and the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is in Old Testament terms telling us about the worldwide impact of the gospel of Messiah. Not just the Jews, of course, but a huge influx from all nations. And if we have, in the second part of this chapter, Christ as the second Adam, we have, in the third part, Christ as the second Moses. As it says at the end of the chapter, as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt... Here is a second and greater exodus as from all the nations people come into the kingdom. It's speaking of great turnings of the nations to God in Christ. It's speaking of the triumph of the gospel. And there have been anticipations and indications of this in church history. One thinks of the Reformation when huge numbers came to know Christ from the nation's at least in the West. One thinks of the evangelical awakening of the 18th century when America and, and England and other nations too were so impacted by the gospel. A gathering of the scattered. Verses 13 and 14 speaks about the healing of divisions, the healing of antagonism. Judah and Ephraim, that's the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom no longer at each other's throats, but together facing a common enemy. You know, when people really come to Christ, they stop fighting each other, they stop fighting their spouse or their neighbours or their children or whatever it is. They now have a war with Satan, with the world, the flesh and the devil. And then verses 15 and 16. The Lord utterly destroying the tongue of the sea of Egypt with his mighty wind, shaking his fist over the river, striking it in the seven streams. This is really echoing what happened in the first exodus when God led Israel out of Egypt across the Red Sea. The Red Sea became dry land. And here we're learning of a second highway with the obstacles removed. It's the calling of elect sinners through the gospel to Jesus Christ. It's the calling of men and women like you and I to faith in Christ. And he makes a way for you to come to Jesus. To simply trust in him as your Lord and Savior. You see, one thing we should do as we just pause and conclude our look at this chapter. One thing we should, we should do or not do, perhaps I should say, is despair about the stump. 
despair about the rod, this insignificant rod from the stem of Jesse. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth, they said? Herod after him with his soldiers, the scribes and the Pharisees out to get him, out to murder him, and the Romans eventually crucifying him. But don't despair of the stump, because he rose from the dead, and the gospel went into all the world, and Christ was, was raised from the dead, and Christ ascended into heaven, and now he reigns and rules, and he's coming again a second time. The first time was unique and significant. The second time will be different. No longer humble and lowly, but he will come in power and glory. And he will come now to reign and to be accepted throughout the world. Oh, this does challenge you and me, doesn't it, as to whether or not we are members of this kingdom. Whether or not you have submitted to the king. Whether or not you've turned from your sin and believed in the saviour. 